This is Speaking Easy Theology with Chris Green. Jordan, welcome back. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be back. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about Colossians, and we're going to focus primarily on the Christ hymn and then the, the opening verses of chapter three, but we'll see. We'll see where, where else we go. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm just going to, you've been a guest a number of times. People know who you are. They know your work. And so no need to say more about that at the moment. I'm going to jump right to how does Maximus read that kind of opening hymn, what we now call a Christ hymn, you know, 15 to 20. And how did that, how did, how did you kind of come into seeing Maximus's read of that? Like, how did you learn it? How did you stumble on it? And I, I know it factors in your book. So talk to us a little bit about that too, but yeah, just give us a sense of Maximus's read of that, of that passage. So I think, you know, for Maximus, um, you know, I, I, so just to say up front, you know, um, Maximus doesn't have like a, um, an extended commentary on large portions of Colossians or anything like that, like he does on the Lord's Prayer, for instance, for example. Mm-hmm. But I kind of piecing together. So mostly, what I'll say is sort of a synthesis or piecing together from parts where he he does critically, like he, he makes cru- crucial citations um, um, to uh, you know from Colossians um, and Ephesians as well usually around the theme of the incarnation and the body of Christ, all these things we see certainly in, in Colossians 1. Uh, he significantly mm-hmm. sneaks in uh, a citation of Colossians 1, uh, 27, which is almost, it's almost like one of those, it's one of those places in the New Testament where the mystery of Christ is just straight out defined or yeah. stated, right? The mystery yeah. of Christ, which is Christ in you. And um that's something that Maximus sneaks into the beginning of his response in question 60, the famous question 60 about what the mystery uh, is that was foreknown before, before the ages. So, so anyway, Maximus is pulling. So it seems like Colossians is significant for him for sure. But even though he doesn't have a direct treatment of it, um, I think so. So broadly, what I want to say is that for Maximus, He's going to read these verses as consonant and deeply resonant with with what in like the book I call with other scholars I call um, neo Chalcedonian um, Christology. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about that before, but a kind of really brief summary of that will be you know in Chal- at Chalcedon you have the definition of of Christ um, uh, and, and, and mostly a series of you might call dualities like he's t- he's too he's perfectly God perfectly human he's perfect um you know he's born before the uh, from the father before all ages and he's born of mary in these latter ages and so forth so there's sort of these dualities and post chalcedon post 451 the kind of big discussion there because there's lots of people that are worried and even reject chalcedon as a council based on the idea that it kind of betrays the oneness of Christ, that there is one Lord Jesus Christ, though it states that, but they're worried that the interpretation is, is too heavily lead, uh, uh, inclined towards an historian, a division of Christ between these dualities, these two, 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 two. Um, and so what I think is going to, what's interesting about that and the neo Chalcedonian project and Maximus in particular is they're going to try to receive or interpret is probably a better way to put it interpret that definition that for which for them is authoritative it's an ecumenical council and so forth they're going to res- they're going to try to interpret it in such a way that it still focuses and even reinforces the oneness 
the one subject uh, uh, who is Christ that, say, Saint Cyril of Alexandria would have would have um, wanted to stress. And so, why I bring all that up is because I do think that still remains the framework of Maximus's reading of the New Testament broadly, but certainly a text like this, I mean, you can kind of see in Colossians one where that would be. I mean, you, we're talking about Christ. You know, He's the one through whom you have redemption. You've received redemption, and then you get this mm-hmm. hymn. So you're talking about the historical yeah. person, right? Number twice in in, the, in those verses in Colossians one is the cross explicitly stated or referenced at least twice that I can think of off the top of my head, and so you you have a person like there's the actual person in history in an event in history Golgotha, but then mm-hmm. all of a sudden the hymn says you know he's the perfect he's the, he's the image of the invisible God, um, yeah. you know, and, and and you get these statements, but then you get right right after that, you know, he's the, he's the firstborn of all creation. He's the first, you know, of all, but then he's also the firstborn among the dead so that, so that he might prove himself. And it's interesting, the Greek word there, I think usually it's rendered like that's around what verse 19 or something so that he might be shown preeminent or revealed. Mm -hmm. Really, really, it's, it's actually not that to me introduces a sense of like, he's already there and he's just sort of letting you know what he really is. But actually the, the Greek says like, so that he might be preeminent, so that he might be the first of and among all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I'm just I'm double checking right here. It is so the NRSV is that he might come to have, that he might come to have this place, right? Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. to your point, like, it, are we hearing this as a becoming or as something that that he? that he had, you know, already has like that, that is, I think really fascinating translation issue. Right. And what's at stake theologically there. So how, how would you translate it again? What would you? So, so I, if I remember right, the word is just, uh, genite, which is just, it's a subjunctive that he might become first. Mm-hmm. So that it might, he might become, and then there's a participle that that's the word that first among so that he might become, um, the one who is being first is like the really literal, the one who is being first, or I think sometimes preeminent is what they say um, among or in all or among all, um, which is interesting. It's up the preposition there. If I remember right, is in. So it's, so it's this ambiguous preposition can mean like among many different individuals. It could also mean like in like, like our English word inside something. So he's becoming the first, almost like the principal of all in mm-hmm. all, um, which of course, as you know, I mean, as you well know, I mean, Colossians, that's going to be stated explicitly as you go on throughout the book. So, um, so I think, so all that to say that kind of the bigger point that I wanted to, to begin on then is that this subject, this one who died on the cross, whose blood, you know, ransoms you is, is I think in Maximus's eyes or, or sort of post Chalcedon's eyes, would be would be this one who already in Colossians one seems to bear these two very different sets of uh, properties or characteristics. Mm-hmm. He's the firstborn of all creation, but he's also he through whom all things are made and into whom all things are being made. Uh, but he's also died, and he's the firstborn among the dead. Um, yeah, and yeah. so the same kind of dualities that you see stated in different language, of course, in at Chalcedon. I think for someone like Maxus, you would see is deeply resonant already here in the sort of like, you know, right here in the roots of scripture and especially in this, in this hymn. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing to say before we, before we keep going, I just taught an intensive this week, a Christology intensive. And one of the things that I contended for them is, you know, like in, and as you know, like in a lot of critical scholarship, there's been an argument for a long time now, a couple hundred years or more that, that high Christology develops over time, right? That by the time you get to something like Maximus, you know, it's, it's taken generations and generations to, to get there. But the fact of the matter is there's nothing in Maximus that's not surpassed in terms of what it claims of Christ in Colossians or Ephesians, right? Like the claims the New Testament makes about Jesus are staggering. And I'm not suggesting that it doesn't take a long time for the churches to find shared language, mm-hmm. a reason the implications of that language, but the claims being made about Jesus right yeah. here at the, and one of the earliest texts we have. I mean, there's no way to exaggerate how high this Christology is in my opinion. Like, yeah. It's, and I think the other thing about this is kind of a, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine that I don't want to get us too far off, off of the text of Colossians, but since you make that remark, it, it does, it does sort of stir in me this thought. Um, the other thing that's really remarkable about the synthesis, if I can put it this way, the Christological synthesis reached at and beyond the Chalcedon, and particularly in someone like Maximus, is mm-hmm. that, I mean, I, is that <laughs> it's exactly because he, he, for him, Christ is one in a way that's to us initially inconceivable. Mm-hmm. And in fact, as he says in Ambiguum 5, right, his oneness is revealed in the generation of opposites in himself. And and the word is opposites. Um, actually, I just translated, yeah. I, in fact, I just translated uh, this line, if I can remember it, from a letter of Maximus just, just a few days ago. And he's, 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 uh, he's sort of just making a brief comment on what it means to call God. He, he quotes uh, Psalm 47, uh, which talks about, you know, the great king calls God the most high, who is the great king among all the, you know, over all the earth. And he like goes through each word and try to give like a really quick gloss of what, why he's called that descriptor. When he gets to great, he says, and he is great because he shows in himself that he can make, and that's the word he uses, that he can create even opposites through their opposites. As he has mm. created life through death, as he, cre- you know, he lists some other examples, but it's all Christological. All things through nothing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, so and so there again, even in that brief, like one sentence description, you know, or definition or summary of why, what it means to call God great, it's Christological. And, and it's, uh, and it's exactly his ability to bring together and not only bring together, but actually exemplify outward simultaneously these two opposites. So we can say, right, firstborn from, uh, you know, he, he is the principle through whom all things were made. He is called here in this text, the archie. He is the principle through whom all things were made and into whom or toward whom all things are made. But then he's also, the, he's also the dead one who's arisen. So he's the firstborn from among the dead. And, you know, and, and so there's this already this sort of j- not just bring reconciliation of, of opposites, although the word reconciliation is crucial in this text as well, but he reconciles as he also exemplifies the very things he reconciles. And I think why I'm bringing this up is because I think the pet peeve part that I mentioned was this, you know, and, and I think the high and low Christology thing is great. It's heuristically important and even necessary to, to teach and to talk and discuss these things. But, but sometimes on either side, when people 
when people try to kind of come down and you know, whether they're taking a real critical, like you might say more historicist view, view and like, well, you know, uh, reading back into the new Testament, all this sort of high Christology is, is, uh, is anachronistic and it's, it's nonsense. And it's sort of a kind of a, almost like a conservative Orthodox apologetic, or if you, you know, go to the other side and basically say like, Oh, it's all there completely stated and understood and thematized, you know, almost as it would be later. What both what both approaches meth uh, what they miss is that if if what someone like Maximus is saying is true about Christ, you can't separate the method from the content of Christ, understanding Christ. Yeah. And so, in other words, it becomes it, it precisely because in Christ his oneness generates the very opposites of which he is the one. Then you can't um, you can't just go through and say, "Well, look at all this really lowly stuff that's described." Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right? That's exactly right. Or, or you can't just go and say, "Look, he's look at you know he." Let's just only talk about John one and Colossians one, and 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 like that's who he really is. The truth is, as I emphasize in the book, is he's really both. He's really both, and unless you see that simultaneously, you'll miss the whole. That's right. He's one as the other. Not not only is he both right; he's one as the other. Exactly. That, that whatever we're claiming here about the Creator, it is precisely as this man. Yeah, one as the other, and again, here in this text, we can already see this, right? Because what not only in the firstborns, you know, sort of juxtaposed, but also, you know, he is called the Archi, which which just on its own can sound like a kind of metaphysical principle or like a mere higher cause of all things, you know, um, but. I also emphasized earlier that subjunctive, right? So that he might become first. So that he might become principal. It's a different word. It's protos as a part of a, you know, like proto as a part of, um, as a part of a verb or a part of something. But, but the point is it's active. And so it's even on that level, it's, it's really fascinating to me. Like given this kind of speculative or crystal Christology, looking back on this text, you can say, you know, it's it's like he's described at one in the one in the same breath as both the principal, whom you would sort of consider prior, like already finished, and he's just sort of producing effects like the sun shoots forth or emanates rays. Um, but then he's also like a ray; he has to become so that he might become first in all, and so he's the one who is both the kind of the ground of action of creative action, but also the thing actualized. And, and even at that level, I know that sounds like real metaphysical, but I think it's so fascinating. And this whole thing is bookended by an actual historical event, the cross, you know, through his blood, this is how you've, you've, uh, you've uh, obtained, you know, redemption. Um, And so I think that you're right. Like it's, 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 um, it's very popular today, I think, at least in academic circles, whether it's in apologetics or it's in critical scholarship, to kind of pretend that we can basically adopt a method and then make judgments on the content of, of the thing that we study through that method, whether it's a historical method or a quote-unquote dogmatic method. Um, but, but the truth is, when you're looking at these texts, the event itself, the reality itself, if it really is that he is one in such a way that he is both and he is one and the other, and one through the other. Then, then you know, and that's a matter of faith in a certain deep sense. That's a matter of you know. I'm not saying, but but if that's true, 
then it would also be true that no method, no one-sided method, whether that's historical critical or dogmatic ahistorical, no one-sided method will give you or deliver or even glimpse the whole. And, and so that's why I think it's so beneficial to like with Maximus or other people to look back at a text like this and say, you know what? Actually, it's not that hard to read the whole with and in this text. Mm-hmm. That's right. Our methods can limit us, right? Like the maps are always misleading us about what's in the territory, right? And, and the point I was trying to make is, is simply that like Colossians – the claims it's making about Jesus and about everything in light of Jesus are, are truly staggering. Like there, there's nothing more like we read Maximus and we, we, that feels speculative to us. Right. 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 It's, it's deep, but in a lot of ways, Maximus is just trying to trace reason from the claims that Colossians makes yep. or in Ephesians and other texts too. But I think that often gets lost for us, right? That we, at least in t- people in my tribe tend to assume and, and not from a critical perspective. I mean, even laypersons, like reading devotionally, they kind of assume that the apostolic claims are modest, right? Like that, that Jesus is God, but that there's there's not a lot of metaphysical density to what they're claiming. Right. But I mean, right. In in fact, like the scriptures are are kind of in Colossians in particular, I think, is charged with with claims about this this Jesus and what his life and death have meant and and I, I don't know how we recover kind of the awe of that, right? I mean, I, I've been reading Ezekiel lately. And, you know, you've got these accounts of theophanies, the, the prophetic encounter, Ezekiel by the river, Isaiah in the temple, and, of course, Moses on the mount. And what Paul is claiming, like Colossians is written by someone who claims to have had that kind of encounter just intensified. <laughs> like, and I think we forget that, like, that's it is this experience of Jesus. Not, it's not just you know philosophical reflection on what the gospel means. I mean, the gospel is being articulated by people, Peter and John and and Paul and others, who've had this kind of genuinely unthinkable, unimaginable encounter with this one in whom opposites are are coinciding. Yeah. And that's where the theology comes from, right? And Maximus is just, you know, like Gregory and like Origen, kind of following that, t- taking it seriously and asking what, what are the implications then? Yeah, I mean, how, how remarkable is it that right after you get this hymn in 15 through 21, in chapter 1 there, uh, or 23, sorry, um, you know, the first thing he says is, I rejoice you know, in the sufferings and my sufferings, a suffering on behalf of you. And then he says, I am filling up, right. The things which lacked, which still lacked to the sufferings of Christ, you know, on behalf of his, Mm -hmm. his body, which is the church. Right. So it's just, what's so it's, you know, talk about going from high to low and oscillating back and forth between opposites the highest and the lowest. He just talked about this. He, he, he referenced the cross. So that's very gruesome. That's very gritty. That's very historical. It's very human. And then he goes into talking about how all things, you know, actually this guy who's crucified is the archie. Very metaphysical. I mean, you know, that word has been used all over the place by philosophers and all this. And so he's the archie. He's the principle. He's the creative principle of all things. He is, he is the one in whom all things hold together, right? So he's the unifying, not even force is the right word, but he's the unifying principle or reality or presence 
that makes the great manifold and multiplicity of creatures one thing nevertheless. And, and so you get that, you get the first born from among the dead and he, he's becoming imminent. He's becoming first in all things. And then all of a sudden the next thing he thinks of is, and that same one, his sufferings, they're being filled up in my life and in the life of the church. Right. right. And I know there's a dispute yeah. here about how to translate this, but I'll just, I'll just make a little brief remark on that. I think it's to miss the point to focus on, uh, say, like, you know, the word sufferings and how it relates to the genitive, because the other genitive mm-hmm. right after that is really the crucial point, which is the, the objective or subjective or both genitive of to Christu. It is, it is his sufferings. Yeah, his sufferings. And that's, that's the thing that, you know, and I think the one that was told, at least according to Acts 9 and elsewhere, you know, um, why do you persecute me when he's persecuting Stephen, the first martyr? you know, uh, Paul, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? I think he knows and he understands he's intuiting and whoever's writing this text, whether it's him or someone close to him knows that as well. And they're saying, you know, they're making that similar illusion and that identification that what I'm suffering, even in my life here and now is still somehow adding to the sufferings to Christu of Christ. The one that I just talked about him being, crucified us getting redemption through him but then also him being the the principle of all creation and the end of all creation is alfton you know in into him and so and so that that's that so he's performing the text is performing even in its rhythm the very content that you and i've been discussing we we were hot flying high and then we're going to come right back down to our sufferings right now my sufferings Mm -hmm that I'm still yeah. adding and filling up in myself. It's remarkable. Yeah, and, and everything, I mean, and this is part of what, you know, you're showing in the book is that Maximus understands that you, well, this is the, the way I would put it. And, I, and again, I don't think it's just Maximus. I think it is that kind of neo-Chalcedonian tradition. I think you can see it more contemporarily. You can see it in Robert Jensen. You can see it in, in Dieter Bonhoeffer, like his Christology lectures and his sermons. Like, I, there, in fact, there's a passage I should read to you um, and get your response to it from one of his sermons on Colossians three, when we get to that text. But so I, it isn't just Maximus, but you know, like the, you get this right. line of thought in which it seems the way that I've put it, the way that I've said it to students is you've got the, what we might call the concrete history of Jesus of Nazareth, like conception to burial and res- bit to burial. Like you've got that kind of that timeline of his life. And that life that's lived, you know, between Nazareth and Jerusalem. And somehow that story just is the story of all things. It is the cosmic story. Not, not it's a analogy, you know, analogous to it, not it's an illustration of it, but somehow it is constitutive of what happens so that everything that happens to him is happening to all things. Yes. And anything that happens to anything happens to him, right? So you you've got this on on both sides. On on Paul can say, you know, I'm making up what is lacking in his sufferings by my own sufferings. Mm-hmm. But Hebrews can say people are crucifying the Lord afresh, right? He's still being crucified. Yes. So we can suffer with him. Others are making him suffer, but everything that happens is happening to Jesus because he's the as you said the principle. He is the heart of the heart of what is. Right. So anything that happens is something that's happening to him and whatever he is, is happening to all things, right? Like he, as all things are happening to him, he's not being changed 
everything is being changed. It's being, you know, brought into through his suffering. It's being brought into the glory of God. So talk a little bit about that, about the ways in which how would how would you and how do you talk about the relationship between that kind of concrete historical experience of this man, Jesus of Nazareth and cosmic being and becoming. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Let's just look really quick at the, at the Colossians text. Cause I think it sets up a, a way of thinking about that exact thing you, you're bringing up here. And I'm, I'm looking specifically, I'm kind of just going to translate on the fly. I don't know if this is what, uh, you know, the NRSV says, or, but verse 17 and 18. I think this is a perfect example of what you just said. And he himself is before all things, and all things hold together or really are constituted, maybe. have. In fact, it's a, it's a perfect have been constituted in him, which is already interesting, right? Because all things would include everything in the future as well, by the way. And yet this yeah. is put in the past, have been constituted in him. And look at 18, and he, it's the same exact grammatical structure, and he himself is the head of the body, which, you know, of the church, of the body, his body, of the church. So look at that. So here's here's why I'm pointing to it, because he himself, and himself, Alftos is is said twice, it's exactly the same structure, right? In fact, yeah, Mm -hmm. both of 17 and 18, both begin, ke Alftos esteem, and he himself is. Okay, so he is two things. There's two ises yeah, yeah. ascribed to him yeah, yeah, who yeah. is, right? He is before all things. And in him, that sounds like a metaphysical, like a creative principle of all things, the cause of all things. He's before all things and in all things have been constituted in him. Okay. And then he is the head of the body of the church. The church is in history. Right, mm-hmm. and and that body, by the way, has been crucified in his flesh, as we've already said. And he's going to say in a few verses, and as Paul's going to say in a few more verses after that, is still being added to. Okay, so that's a historical, that's a, an event, sort of episodic. That's you might say horizontal dimension there, whereas seventeen was a more vertical, sort of sounding dimension of he himself is before all things and him all things. So this is why I'm bringing this up is because the only thing that connects those two axes, the vertical. And the horizontal are Avtos himself. He mm-hmm. is. Because he, I might say it this way, because he is both toward toward the, and is the principle, right? To take Father Bear's reading of John yeah, yeah, 1, yeah. you could say toward, toward the cross, also toward the, right? Toward the Father. Um, mm-hmm. Because he, his is, his existence, his being is toward the Father, but it's also toward the fullness of creation. And because both of those yeah. are properly predicates of him and even verbs of being ascribed properly to him, the one, Alftos, the one, the same one, he is the only way that any event really and directly and immediately could, could relate to any other event or the scale of events, history, can relate to the whole cosmic, cosmos. No. And I say that because I think usually – we don't – so, like, that's me trying to, you know, with with the, the tradition, the parts of the tradition we've been talking about, I'm trying to take Scripture here in Colossians 1, 17 through 18 as a kind of guide. We could we could have done it with probably any number of verses here. But, um, but, but I think usually we want to go to more, like, I guess, intuitive or natural or common ways of thinking. Like, well, maybe Jesus' mm-hmm. Jesus's concrete life is a great example, 
in the way that like, um, you know, you look at, you know, somebody uh, playing who your favorite guitar player is playing a song. And you see how they do this really tough lick or this tough chord or whatever chord progression. And you say, OK, that's a really good example. I'm going to try to follow that. But it's still kind of distant. It's kind of like external to me. I'm trying to just reproduce it in my own way. But it's it's already there and given. And if I hadn't imitated him, it wouldn't have changed anything about the one imitated, right? But that sounds yeah. like maybe that's how Jesus is. He's like a great example for us. And in a vague way, what the way he lived life is sort of the way generally things are supposed to kind of look, at right. least in terms right, of right, his right. love and his grace and mercy and wisdom and patience and so forth. So so there's that kind of way. Or, or we might... You know, I think some theologies, it's even harder if you, for example, think that the incarnation of the Son of God is basically a kind of response, a plan B or a second kind of act that responds to the fall of humanity. And maybe apart from the fall, that wouldn't have even happened because there would be no need for God to respond or rescue us if we hadn't fallen. And so if you think that, then at that point, um, actually, the incarnation can't reveal anything um uh, in terms of God's original plan, because the incarnation wasn't really a part of God's original plan uh, in itself. It was a, a response to the failure of, of the initial plan. So that means mm-hmm. it's already separated. It's already sort of, it's not intrinsic to the logic or the intelligibility or structure of creation itself. It's something like more like a repair operation and, and maybe restores right, 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 the right. original plan. And so there's many ways what, what, you know, however, there's a lot of other ways too, but there's a lot of ways to kind of um, make this episode more or less extrinsic and easily decoupled from the general project of creation itself and all of the universe, all the, all the cosmos. And I think what, what the perspective we're talking about here does when you say you look at verses 17 and 18 like this, you see that the, the is, both is's are attached to him. It doesn't say mm-hmm. he is first before all things and in, all, in him all things have been constituted or he is the head of the church as if it's like, as if it's like, you know, he be, he, he sort of decided to do that, like take on that role. It says that he is that he is yes. himself that it's like, it's like, it's, it's inherent to who he is, his identity. That's right. And so I he think, himself is the identity. Yeah, that's right. That, that's yeah. exactly right. But, but he doesn't, when we're talking about him, we can't talk about him apart from the body. In fact, I think one way of translating this, and it's not the way that most English translations do it, but you could say he is the head of the body, the church, and that is, the church is the beginning. So huh. in, in, in this sense, right, because the obviously he is the beginning, he is, but he isn't without his body, who he is, right? I mean, there there's no... There is no Christ that is not the Christ of this body. So right. you you can attribute to the body what belongs to the head. And I think that like literally what Paul is saying here is something more like he is the one who makes it so that the church is the firstborn from the dead. Now, of course, yeah. he is. He goes through that process personally first. But he makes it so that the church is sharing in that firstbornness, right? Which is yeah. exactly what Hebrews says, right? The church is the church of the firstborn. So that everything mm-hmm. that's true of Jesus is then therefore made true of the church. I, I think we want the strongest possible connection between. And for me, yeah, 
That's what makes the Neo-Chalcedonian tradition attractive is that it takes the maximal, no pun intended, it takes the, <laughs> it, it lets those terms have, it doesn't explain them away or dumb them down or take the, the audacity out of them. And it seems to me that, that, that Paul is saying something truly, truly staggering. And that is Jesus' life is so constitutive of what else happens that what can be attributed to him is attributed to what is his. It, you know, what yes. is in him is the being that becomes in all things. And I think, it, I mean, that is what yes. we're talking about when we talk about creation as incarnation, right? He is filling up all things with himself, which again, Ephesians makes the exact same claim. So it does, you know, in two chapters and chapter three, verse 11, it's going to explicitly say that. So that Christ is and is in all things. That's the end goal. That's the eschatological picture that you get in Colossians. And, and I think that's, and it's not, you know, his presence. It's not some sort of vague force or generally ubiquitous sort of principle. It's him. He, Christ, is in all things and is all things. He is the is of all things so that, you know, what happens to anything happens to him and vice versa. So he himself, alvtos estin, he himself is. The fact that he himself is, is the reason why anything is, and it's the reason why anything is connected to the is of anything else. Yep. yep. And that, that I think, and, and I think too, the other thing you're pointing to, which I think is, and I don't even think in my book, I explored this. I, I felt this and I was like, but I, I just didn't think it, it was going to be possible to explore this more, uh, more directly. And so hopefully someday and you, you know, I, I, maybe I want to see you do it, <laughs> but um, he, uh, you know, like you know how people like to go back to Saint Athanasius's um, pa- that passage where he's talking about, you know, uh, like he's doing the kind of almost two two activities, like you know, the one who was even while he was mm-hmm. suckling, you know, at yeah. his mother's breast, he was also upholding the stars, and and yep. even as he was walking around, you know, he was also sort of upholding the earth, like as the creator and cause of all things. Mm-hmm. And I think I think that's fine. That's definitely fine. I mean, I like that. I like that passage, um, but. I also still think we don't think through it deeply enough because, and I don't even know, you know, Father Bear might be right about Athanasius and so maybe he himself did. I I don't know. I'm not qualified to say, but I think us, at least me, when I read that passage, you know, one, one of the things you realize is like, it's not like what, what's being said there is that, you know, um, certainly there's no succession idea, right? Like, well, while he's sort of, um, while he's sort of, uh, you know, suckling at the breast of his mother, he sort of, you know, isn't doing the creator thing. But then whenever mm-hmm. he does the creator thing, he's sort of stopping, you know, he's not being the human thing. No, no, he's both at once. Okay. But then I still think we kind of allow a little partition in and we're like, well, you know, okay. So he's both God and he's human. So he's sort of doing them simultaneously, but you know, things can be simultaneous and yet still at a great distance. And so you can say, well, in a sense, he's sort of like, he's almost dual consciousness and he can like sort of split and, you know, he's, he's maintaining the heavens at the same time as he's walking on the earth as a human being. He's kind of doing both. But what I think the deepest thing is you already do see this explicitly in Maxis, but some other, other writers too around the time. Um, you can even put this in terms of partitive exegesis, like, oh, well, this part here is about Jesus, the human being. And this is a real human passage, but then over here, he's going to do a God thing when he like walks on water or raises some from someone from the dead. Um, 
and it seems very successive or here's this part of him and here's the other part of him. What Maximus and others, and I think if you just thinking on it, like meditating on it more deeply, theologically, what you realize is that actually if the very same agent is the author of both activities, then it means that no no activity he does is separate or separable from the other activity that he does. That's right. Because he himself is just as much present and present as the active like as the agent, as the actor of any of his activities and to us that's mind-blowing and comprehensible sure but but st- it's 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 right there right it's sort of right there as so this is where it's it's interesting to me like we have no problem attributing to grace and to god to the good works that we do like mm-hmm. like they belong to him because whatever is good, whatever is loving, whatever, you know, these things are him and Christ is seated there you know, to, to allude to three. Christ is seated there among these things. And so in a sen- sense, right, anything you do is attributed to Christ. Anything you do that's good, true, beautiful, loving, kind, divine is attributed to Christ um, because he's sort of the author of that in you doing those things, producing those things. But it's interesting because it seems very unilateral. Like what about the other way? And I, here I know I'm pushing a little bit uh, the boundaries, but wouldn't it be true as well that human beings or anyone who partakes and who is a part of the body of Christ also partakes in the activities of Christ, which will also include, you know, what's most property to divinity, which would be creation. So it's not just that I'm good, and I'm loving. It's that when I'm good and I'm loving, I'm also I am a contributor, an actor with Christ in the act of creation because that's just as much an act. So it's this two way thing, right? He himself who can be both born and the the ground of all being born. He himself who can be both eternal and the ground uh, and the producer of time. He himself who can be both the resurrection and the life, but also dead. Um, makes all of those right and the second uh, you know predicates there I listed those who die those who are born those who are in time he makes all of those he transfers all those things to the first set of predicates the one who is eternal the one yeah. who is you know uh, good the one and so that's that kind of yes it's like going back to an earlier point you made it, this is hard to abstract and conceptualize. Um, and there's certain good and bad ways to understand it, but I think fundamentally this is the kind of the only thing you can, the, the kind of thing you can only really know by by experience in, in a way. Yeah, that, and that, that's to, just to the point. And I want us to get to Colossians three, but a couple of couple of things. One is, I I think that there's a clue to all this in Hebrews, the introduction to Hebrews, where Christ is identified as the exact imprint of God's being. And, and I'm interested in that because in one way, what makes an imprint or the imprint that is made is itself an absence, right? Like, so, you know, hmm. that's what the mold does, right? It, 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 the emptiness or the lack is a representation of the fullness that then allows conformability. And Jesus, if we think in those terms, like Jesus is both the image that leaves the imprint and the imprinted image, Yes. He's both the yes. fullness and the lack, right? And that's what we're talking about yes. when we talk about the opposite, right? That he's both the the active agent and the thing acted upon for the sake of creation. And this is why causality is running in both directions. 
and I think this is what you were just saying, right? Like, it's not just that everything is flowing from God to humanity. It's God's humanity, right, mm. that is both giving and receiving. And I think we see that Eucharistically, yeah. right? In, in Callistos Ware has this wonderful talk in which he says about the Eucharist, you know, who gives what to whom? And he makes yes. the point that, I mean, there's no, it's, a, it's a, a, a reciprocity of giving and receiving that's unbreakable, right? It's yes. a gift both given and received. And that is what it means. That's who Jesus is if Paul is right. If, if Colossians is telling the truth, Jesus is in himself that reciprocity, communion of attributes, the coincidence of opposites. And nothing could be more, I mean, that's, that's where the action is. Eugene Peterson's, um, his translation of Ephesians 3 is that Christ is where the action is. <laughs> I love that because I, I think, I don't know that it's a, it's not a helpful translation, but it is a good gloss for mm-hmm. what's happening. I think mm-hmm. in Colossians mm-hmm. that the person Jesus is where all the action is. Everything is happening in him. Right. Mm-hmm. And so when Paul is saying in him, again, that's not, that's not a kind of abstracting away from you know, into some kind of realm of thought or analogy. No, everything is happening in him, literally, you know, concretely, objectively, like all of this is happening in Christ. And because of who he is, his humanity is altering the the very nature of creation itself. And so I think that's the, to me, that's just, that's the glory, right? That we're talking about that, that is, is purpose for us. So let's, let's transition to Colossians three then. Talk to us a little bit about how you, how Maximus does and how you read, you know, that, that notion that our lives are, are, that Christ is our life and that our lives are hidden with him. Yeah. So <laughs> I have the, I, I think, I, I don't know when there's a little piece coming out and I, for that piece, uh, it's a little essay, a little reflection on, um, it's called uh, virtue and vice is true and false incarnation. And at the beginning I translated Colossians 3, 1 through 11 um, for that piece. Because in a way, it's sort of just a kind of a, ends up being a sort of meditation on these verses. And oh, wow, yeah. I, I have to say, when I translated it, uh, I hadn't really looked at the, the text for a long time, like the, the Greek. And it was really astounded all over again. And some, some of the themes we've already mentioned, but and I don't have my translation here, but I'm, I'm going to just read out sort of a rough translation on the fly here just because I don't know where I put the other one, but um, this given everything we've just said, let's just like hear this for a second. I want to pick up in verse two, think on the things that are above or almost like meditate or ruminate on the things that are above, not the things that uh, I almost think are like towards the earth. And there's a reason for that a little later, Mm -hmm. but like things that merely go downward towards the earth. For, and here's, because you have died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And here's the thing that just kind of blew me away. Maybe it's just I hadn't thought of it or maybe it is clear in other translations. But whenever, and that's the word there, right? It's an open thing. It's it's not like um, at this point or that point. It's whenever Christ should be revealed or might be revealed again, a subjunctive whenever that might happen. And then there's this weird break in the sentence. Your, it just says your life. 
Usually, usually we clean it up and say like Christ, who is your life or something like that. But really the, the, the text just says, whenever Christ should be revealed your life, it's like, by the way, that's what I'm talking about here. He, when I say Christ, it means you, your life. He says, then also, or even one way or the other, then also you yourselves will be revealed or manifested, or I might say it this way, uh, you yourselves will appear with yeah. him in glory. Now, I think sometimes, at least for me, the way I used to read that was like, oh, so like I'm going to kind of, you know, I, yeah, I've died. It's a poetic way of saying we're all going to die. You've died. Or maybe you sort of died in a sense like when you became baptized or, you know, but of course a, a thin view of baptism, like, yeah, it's sort of symbolically or something. I'm like on my way to joining Christ in death. And then I'm going to appear in glory and that's nice and that's eternal life. And that's, that's what it's all about. Right. But I think the deeper pronouncement here is that I can't appear at all unless Christ appears and Christ doesn't appear without me appearing. Mm-hmm. Yes. There's a right. mutual, there's a mutual manifestation because mm-hmm. your life has hidden with Christ and God among the things that are above, which you should be thinking about. Yes. You should be thinking about those things because that's who you truly are. And yet, these these the very things you should be thinking about still need to be revealed. And when they are revealed, the things that are revealed, who are Christ, and, and, and you know He's the one seated enthroned among those things. Those things, along with Him, when they are revealed, when He is revealed, your that's the same thing as saying your life is revealed. In other words, that's the same thing as saying you. That's when you finally will be revealed. Yeah. Yep. And so that 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 is kind of just like that to me is so it's so um it's so kind of bold I guess to say it that way because what it's it's it sounds like it's saying something that seems impossible to say which is that yeah. God's life is bound up with ours and yet I mm-hmm. thought he was life itself he's the principle and cause of life he could do well, you know. According to some people, he could do well just without us. He, he may maybe maybe he didn't create, couldn't have. He may have not have created us at all. He, you know, it's sort of an indifference, a basic indifference towards the act of creation. But here, what we're saying is actually your life is already with Christ and God, and when it, He is revealed, you yourselves will be revealed. They're so bound together, one can't really appear without the other appearing, and they both appear through one another. Yes, 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 yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, it's again the, I, I understand people's, like why people are concerned about, you know, kind of what we would say safeguarding that creator-creature distinction. And in terms of like catechesis and moral formation, there is there are places where we do kind of have to emphasize, you know, God is God and you are not, in a sense, right? Right, sure, uh, uh, right. But yeah. what there's a there's a rhetorically there's a place for that kind of clarification but what paul is saying not just paul i mean i think this is you know this is john and peter and hebrews it's it's not just paul i think it's a it's a scriptural claim i think it's psalms and the prophets as much as it is the new testament that there just there just isn't any other god than the god who has made himself the god of his creation right mm-hmm. i'm the holy one in your midst and that midst in which the Lord is known, those knowers of the Lord who is known, like they are, 
essential to his life by his free choice. And I think Jensen is exactly right about this. Like what actually establishes the creator creature distinction is their inseparability in the life of Jesus. Like the Christology is not a problem to fix. How do we safeguard creator creature distinction and allow Jesus to be Jesus? Jensen is like, no, no, no. Jesus constitutes what reality is for God and for us. And precisely as such shows that it is his identification with us, his shared equality with us, that makes us the creatures we are and him the creator he is. And we've, we've got that somehow like inside out and upside down. Like we're trying to safeguard something that is established by the intimacy, by the identification. Yeah, like, well, and like you said earlier, right, you know, citing Peterson, the action. And, you know, the idea of an action is not the act. And the act mm-hmm. is always more than the idea of it. <laughs> and in fact, even in that, yeah. that works both ways, right? If you're predicting an action or an event to come, you can never exhaustively uh, imagine it. You, you have to still experience it as it act in its happening. But then also if you recollect something that's already happened, what you're recollecting, you're putting back together, remembering is something that's like an, uh, an approximation. There's nothing that ever fully is commensurate with the happening itself which should teach us even just from that kind of like, I don't know, like, I don't know if you want to call it a phenomenological observation or just sort of an observation about life or experience um, that it's fine to begin. I don't even know if we can, I don't think we can avoid it. We have to begin with, you know, clear ideas of God Mm -hmm. creator and creation creature. Of course, of course we do. I mean, I don't, I don't know how else to get off the ground. Um, and I don't know how else to read a lot of scriptures. Of course, I mean, it's very clear, right? right? There's there's definitely a distinction to be made for sure. Now, the, the but then the question is, how do you interpret the distinction? And it seems like a lot of people think that what is uh, initially necessary, therefore, makes it absolutely comprehensive. And mm-hmm. I don't see that as following. <laughs> because since an idea of something is never as much you might say, or as complete as the, uh, that of which it's an idea. So the event or the action, then why would it be that, you know, God is God being acting, actually being creator. You might even say with Colossians one, becoming the first in all things, which is an action. Um, mm-hmm. That action will always supersede our initial graspings and apprehensions of it. That almost seems like in a certain way that almost seems like unsurprising. Now, what is surprising is the content or like with the character, the contours of the action itself. And when I look and say, you know, from a certain perspective, ecce homo, behold, the man is the completion of the human being. Okay, that surprises me. Or the one who's dying, who's pouring out his blood is actually in, in that act somehow laying the foundation of the world. That surprises me. Um you know, the one who is raised from the dead, it's because he's raised from the dead, he's died and been and, and resurrected. That is actually the reason why I die. I can die in, in the hope of resurrection. That surprises me. These sort of opposite, you know, back to Maximus, he is great because he can make opposites through their opposites. And if that's the case, then I, yeah, looking here in Colossians 3, and what we want to say then is, uh, sometimes I refer to this, maybe maybe it's mean, but I almost think people have a theology of, of, of what I want to call God's fragile sovereignty. 
mm. which is very seemingly easily easily threatened by anything getting yeah. too close or too important to his him him. <laughs> um, and it's almost like his own love is a threat to his own transcendence on those views. And what I, what I think is better to say is that his love is so fundamentally real. It is the act and it is Christ. And it is where all the action is that it, it, it of course supersedes any initial idea of any aspect of that act, whether it's from the side of God or the side of the creature. What we end up saying, in other words, is that in Christ, God has manifested things that seem impossible to me into my mind, my small mind. I don't see how I could ever be an equal of God or even be something like a friend of God, certainly not a lover of God. What is man that you're mindful of him, right? That That's natural. That makes sense to me. But then whenever he looks at me and says, I haven't called you slaves, I've called you friends, or I have made known to you everything that the Father has told me. Then I'm like, well, have you really? I don't know if I believe that, you know. And so, so I think what looks like an initial kind of pious, like I'm gonna, I want to protect God from our own sort of groping, grasping hands, uh, you know, or, or the, the sort of our minds, which sort of as Adam and Eve in the garden want to reach up and grab things that don't belong to us. Well, that's fine if you grab it in the wrong way. But what if the one who is above has also become below, and has become the whole of above and below? then it's actually presumptuous to resist that in the name of piety. And so God's the question becomes, do you think God's love is more real, more the measure and totality of reality than your fragmentary uh, ideas about what is or isn't possible, what is or isn't absolutely irreconcilable? And so that's, that's I think, what we're getting in, you know, what we're getting in Colossians 3 here is a, with the mutual manifestation because he, so yes. the phrase there, right? Your life is the life. It's technically it's just the Greek, for, you know, the life of us. So what's really remarkable to me is that if Christ is our life, that means He isn't life that isn't already referenced, it referencing us, because He's the yeah. life of us, and He yeah. and He is our life. He's not like He's life first generically and then decides to go ahead and grant it to us and therefore become our life. No, it's that his being the Zoe, his being that is already that of us and of all things, which, you know, when we get down to verse 11, it'll just be plainly stated. So maybe I should cease and desist right there. (laughs) No, no, not at all. And I think if, you know, if we shift out of Pauline language to, to Johannine for a moment, I mean, in the apocalypse, you've got that, that line in chapter two, one of the one of the promises is that those who overcome, I will give a stone, and in the stone is a name mm-hmm. that no one knows except the one who receives it. Mm-hmm. No one knows the name except the one who receives it. Well, like if to have a name, there must be a namer, right? So to say that <laughs> the only one who knows what this name is is the one who receives it. I think I think the mystery here is that that name is the name Jesus has been given. Like the Philippians, the name that is above every name, the the one that the Lord, who's revealed himself to Moses as Yahweh, he gives Jesus this name that is above every name that belongs to the receiver, but in a way that is so mysterious, like you can't peer into it from outside. It has to be received, right? And, And I think, again, 
what's astonishing me right now is that these people, John, Paul, like these are people who brushed up against the man Jesus of Nazareth. Like they they saw his the color of his eyes. They knew what he smelled like. They saw, you know, at least John did, and Paul's a contemporary, even if he was never in the room with you, you know, Jesus in that exact way. And for them to come to say and believe these things about this man, like, I mean, they're, it's staggering, right? Like, because again, our kind of critical account is, you know, that it unfolds over centuries, but really the claims that they're making directly from their experience of Jesus in, and the ways in which that experience of Jesus immediately redoes what they had experienced of him. And then, you know, Paul claiming, I pointed this out to the students the other day. I mean, Paul doesn't just have that one moment in Damascus, outside Damascus, where he encounters Jesus. I mean, he says, like, I, he taught me, like he appeared to me and taught me. And when he taught me, he told me these things, right? I mean, he's, the claims that they're making are, are genuinely staggering uh, about what they experienced of Jesus and what Jesus means. And, and But it seems to me they're all consistently saying that in this man, Jesus, again, this kind of identifiable human being who had a particular history, that guy, right? Mary's son and Pilate's victim, as Jensen says, like that guy makes reality real. And is filling yeah. up all things with the very life of God, right? And if we don't, like, and we're never going to understand. I mean, in that sermon that I mentioned earlier, Bonhoeffer talking about Colossians, he's like, we have no idea what this means. Like, we can't possibly catch up to what's being claimed. But we have to take seriously that that is what's being claimed. Like, we, we don't have any way to conceptualize it, really, because there aren't any analogies. Like, we don't have anything to compare it mm-hmm. to. But we do have to reckon with that is what's being claimed. That Jesus is what makes God God in creation, creation. The Father is the Father because this is his Son. I am who I am because he is the Word. And I have the life I have because the Word has become flesh, taking on my flesh and yours for the redemption and reconciliation of all things. And I think, again, we, we're kidding ourselves if we think we know what we're saying when we say that exactly. But we are, I think... That's the pattern of sound words that Paul is telling Timothy. You have to keep. Like, you have to say these things about Jesus in order to speak about the one he calls God and Father, and to understand what he's saying about you and me and and everything else. And so, like attending to that mystery, I think is that's where the transformation can take place. So, in that sermon, Bonhoeffer talks about how that line "seek the things that are above" can sound so dangerous, like. Is that not an otherworldly kind of irresponsibility in the face of the injustices that we face day to day? And his point is, no, not if you attend to this this one. Right? In the language of Peter, yes, if you sanctify yes. Jesus in your heart as Lord, if, if you're doing that work, then you can't help but start to reshape the injustices around, you know, confront them and so on. So talk, talk about that as we start to wind down. Like, what are the kind of pastoral ethical implications of this kind of Christology? Like how does it come to bear on the world? So I think the way I'll, I'll put it in one statement and then we'll kind of, and then I'll kind of refer to some of these texts, even, even a few that are just come right after here. Um, I think the way it bears on the world is it says, not only is there no Christ, 
I'll put it this way. There's no God without Christ. There's no Christ that is without the world because he is the, he is the life of you, but also he is becoming all in all. And mm-hmm. so what, one thing I, when you ascend, you know, whenever you think on the things above, what you will find is not only the things above, but you'll find the one seated among the things above who is descending into all things below. Yes. And so that's, again, we're, we have to think. The, it's almost an impossible task, like you're saying. I like, agree with you. We have to think action. And action isn't a, a, a generic thing or force. It is the action of. And the, and, the, and the one it's the action of is the agent, the one you said, like, right, you know, the one, this one. And so when I – and that, that's what really captivated me about Maximus, what captivates me still about the New Testament is – it's, it's that the more I ascend, the more I descend, because the one I ascend to is always descending and is, has, has already yes. descended further into the world, into history, into, as Maxwell says, the sufferings of all. He suffers in all, mm-hmm. even deeper than anyone suffers, so that he might redeem and overthrow and resurrect those who have been suffered and killed. And look at, look at this. You can do this, too. This is where it becomes practical. Like, there is that kind of – you can think of it as a personal – ethic, but I think it actually reaches out in social political um, directly as well. But look at like, like verse five, after we got that mutual manifestation, the very next thing he says is, so then put to death. I mean, the words literally kill the parts yeah. of you that tend toward the earth. Now, again, we might be, you know, we might be like, well, hold on. Okay. Otherworldly, otherworldly. Okay, let's just hang on a second. Let's see where it goes. Like, let's see it flow. Let's see the action before we know, before we presume to know what's being talked about. So let's put to death the things that go toward, and then he gives that list there, right? Uh, immor- sexual morality and so forth. I, I want to just highlight this greed, pleonexian, which is idolatry. Okay. It's the, it's two or three times the New Testament is called idolatry. It seems like the only vice that we regularly downplay, at least in America. Okay, so mm. greed, which is idolatry. So you're putting to death all these things. And it says this here. I want to pick up in verse uh, 9. So he says, you know, put to death these things because, you know, the, the, the wrath of God's coming against him and so forth, right? Look at 9, though. Do not deceive yourselves or one another. Um, which is funny to me that he throws that in there. What do you mean? <laughs> you just listed all these yeah vices and stuff it sounds to me like you're just saying i need to be a good person now it says don't deceive yourselves don't deceive one another and then it says crucially put on or enclose or wrap yourself up with the old man or the ancient human mm-hmm. or i'm sorry it doesn't say wrap it yeah. up with this is put away it says put away yeah. the ancient human you might say the first adam which is kind of the universal yeah. it's what we already all are Put away the old Adam and his, look, works, the deeds. That's everything that was just listed above that you're supposed to kill. So the pattern already, by the way, is taking on the, the, the pattern of death and resurrection. So verse 10, and enclose yourself, or put, put clothe yourself, endow yourself with the new one who, mm. who is being made new in, in, in into or for the purpose of, and now we're back to that one thing. Uh, knowledge for sure, but almost experiential knowledge according to the image of the one who's created. And then here we are. So this is the end of the action. And I love the way that's structured here. I think it's kind of sad that English word ordering and a lot of translations I looked at 
turns this around. But they so in the in the Greek, I'm gonna say it literally. It's gonna sound weird, but I think it's important to catch the weird ordering. So in, in eleven, we get this one of these famous verses, right? That you see in Galatians and elsewhere is like whenever. Uh, so so he's he's saying it's a very oddly structured sentence. He's saying you're being made new. Uh, you know, put on the new Adam or the new man and the be, who's being made new or renewed or restored into the knowledge according to the image of the one, uh, the knowledge of him according that that is the one who's creating. And then he says in verse 11, wherever is the ver- like, preposition or whenever it's sort of like I had to clunkily translate this like in the state or the condition in which our uh, one, the Greek and the Jew, right? The circumcised and the uncircumcised, the barbarian, the Scythian, the slave and the free. And then look, here's the last part. So this, so everything is headed towards the state where all of these distinctions are, are one. And then he says, Mm -hmm. so we're not, we're not dividing them up like that, but, and this is the transition, but almost want to say rather, but rather all things, and in all things is, and the last word is Christos, Christ. Christos, the man. last word of that whole passage is, is the name Jesus, is named Christ. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I mean by, look, we started in verse one, thinking on the things above, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. But look, that's not the only place where Christ is, because by the time we get to verse 11, he is all things and in all things. So you find the one yeah. who is seated above coming into and fulfilling and filling out all things. And so Absolutely. God is all in all, 1 Corinthians 15, 28, precisely in and as Christ who is all and in all. And that that kind of solidarity, the mutual manifestation that he's continually even now striving to make himself manifest Right, the second coming, the parousia, but but only so that through that only happens through us becoming manifest because the mutual manifestations, right? They they are mutual; they're they're inseparable. And so, this is where I think it's it's very practical in that way. Yeah, two uh, two quick notes, and then I'll give you the last word. One is I think that this underscores, you know, Maximus's point about the motion coming to rest in Christ, like literally the the you know Paul's the way the words run like accomplishes that, right? So like we've run up yes. against Christ as the last word here. Which yes, is, yes. Is, that's not an accident. The other thing no. is the way that I've translated this, that last line is that Paul almost breaks it off. So like if we if we start at, at verse, um, you know, there's no Greek, Jew, circumcised, and uncir- uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved, and free, and then just break it off with like an M dash, yeah, <laughs> but in all, but all and in all, colon Christ. Yes, exactly. So, like, almost like to try to get at like the the suddenness of it, the the ways in which it's there's no flow to the thought. Here. It's like there's all of this stuff we have: Jew, Greek, <laughs> circumcised, uncircumcised. Dash like breaking from that, but all and in all, Christ. And I think that 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 gets at right what you're what you're describing here, and that the last word, the word to, in which all these things come to rest is the word Christ. And this, this is to me how it all hangs together. Like the word Christ is Messiah. You can't have the word Christ without Israel. 
Mm-hmm. The name Jesus is that Yahweh is salvation. The Lord, the one who revealed himself with this sacred name, the Tetragrammaton, he, he is salvation. So you can't say Jesus Christ without saying the God who is the God who revealed himself to Israel. But you can't say Israel without saying the nation among the nations, like the, the called out for the sake of mm-hmm. the nations. Right? And you can't say humanity without saying the world into which for which humans answer, right? The creation that humans are responsible for, the heavens and the earth and the beasts of the earth and everything in it. And so you can't say God without Christ, Christ without Israel, Israel without the nations, the nations without human responsibility for creation. And there it is, right? It all holds together in him, right? That that name, Jesus, the one who is Christ and Lord, like everything, genuinely everything holds together in him. And that that is what the apostles experience. Like the, the happening we've been talking about happens to them. And all of this reasoning, the best that they can do, all the claims they're making are an attempt to catch up to something that happened to them. Someone they encountered happened to them. And, and we're, mm-hmm. we're called. And I mean, that anything less than that, and we're not quite owning what, what it means yeah. to announce the gospel, it seems to me. All right, I'll give you the last word. So that's so just a few things, and these will sort of harken back to to the to themes of the discussion. The the first thing, again, just hearing you say all that, the first thing I want to say, and I know it sounds like a, it's not really just an academic point, like you said, it's it's kind of I think a lot of lay people think this too. You know about the kind of low high Christology stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I have to just I, I just ask myself, how else would what else would I expect them to think? And how else would I expect them to talk if, if what is, what is, what, what has been continually appreciated and appreciated ever deeper about Christ is true. If it really is the case that he is the one in whom all things are reconciled and even generated in their oppositions, but still one in him and as him and all this like wildly, uh, in a sense, paradoxical stuff, but available to us paradoxes. I mean, a, why wouldn't it take hundreds and hundreds of years to really kind of get a handle on? But also, B, why would I, why would I expect anything different than almost what we do have in the New Testament here? Right, mm-hmm. a kind of reaching for whatever I can. I'll just say stuff. I'm going to go on this long, you know, long paragraph, and I'm just going to end with the only thing I could think to end with is Christ. You know, I'm going to say all these divisions. Right. So there's that point there where I just think it's important to know as we reflect on kind of the the uh, progressive understanding and reflection upon the mystery of Christ through the, the history and tradition of, of Christianity itself. Um, not only, not only do you expect that because the tra- traditions and traditions are always you know alive and moving and adapting and so forth, but also you expect it because if what is true, what the central claim and mystery of the faith is true, it's almost like there's no other way to, to approach and struggle with that mystery precisely and except for trying to grasp at different sides of the opposites, which are being generated in this one person, the, the person, Jesus Christ. But then the other, the other point I'd make is that uh, again, to, to uh, resonate with what you're saying is that the, this Christ that wants to become uh, that, that we, that we are trying to think on and who's seated on the, uh, among the things above 
wants to be and is is about becoming and is all things. And you know the, the the phrase there, all things isn't just it's not just a kind of nice idiom for like, you know, all all, you know, it's all things even down to their individuality. Absolutely. It's it's plural. It's plural. Yeah. All things yeah. is plural. So so this is this is why you know the the divisions he just listed there. Now I, I know it gets a little complicated with especially the, the the slave and free division, and I think there's that's a different discussion we could have. But I think you know, say the ethnic divisions or the divisions between Jews and non-Jews, these are things that are not simply abolished in the oneness because his his way of being one doesn't need to abolish the all things. Mm-hmm. Um, because he's becoming all things and because he is the end point is for him to be and be in all. And this goes back to, you know, Colossians one twenty seven is the very first in the very first chapter that the mystery of Christ is this Christ in you. Um, so Christ is in you, which also, but also your life is in Christ. And these are already that solidarity, that mutual manifestation. Um, and these these are all products and conditions and products and conditions and, and on and on and on of his of his love of of his love mm-hmm. for all things and and his love right as we've said before um, his love is such that he becomes what he loves yes and and that I think is is kind of that's where it's 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 that's where like our our find our common distinctions start to break down right in terms of they just don't adequately convey i mean moral versus ontological the christian life you know personally versus socially i mean these things we divide up the world this way and it's useful and we have to do that for things but if if the one who is and is becoming all things really is himself in all things and at the end of the day, you know, there really is no, the task is really nothing less than embracing all things in and with Christ because he is all things. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of, I'm violating the, the rule I set for myself, but I, it's that Christ in you, the hope of glory. And it, so if we think of glory as kind of the, the radiating out of fullness, right? So, you know, in the language of the prologue in John, like we have seen his glory the glory as of the only begotten, right? So to see his glory is to kind of see his essence like in full expression, like raying out yep. in, in, in its kind of utter flourishing. Like what is, what is destined for us is for his glory to somehow turn out to be ours and ours to be his. Yes. Right. So that, and this is the point he's making about when he's revealed, you'll be revealed too. his manifestation is yours. Not just that you're a sense, so to speak, like sharing the stage, but that there there's such deep mutuality and intimacy that one cannot be without the other, right? Like that we are yes. partakers of, in the language of Peter. We are partakers of the divine nature and the divine nature is one. So I, again, I know I was trying to end, but this is one of the things that strikes me about <laughs> Jesus saying, Love your, you know, we often summarize Jesus' teaching as, you know, love your Lord, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. But it seemed to me that there are two things. Like at the beginning, like in Mark's gospel, they ask him, What's the greatest commandment? Jesus says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, that the Lord is one. And you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So what you get is a call to love God and love neighbor. But you have to remember that the, the Lord you are called to love is the Lord who is this Trinity who is this father, 
known in this Son by the Spirit. This, this one, Jesus, discloses to you who this one is. And his life has an integrity, has a wholeness, has a oneness that's indivisible, like one, one nature, right? And that oneness is meant to exist between you and your neighbor that you love. Like you're to love your neighbor as yourself in the way that the father loves the son as himself. Thanks to that spirit. And all of that, right, is what has been made possible. So that as Ronner will say, there is no loving God that isn't loving your neighbor. There is no loving God that isn't loving your neighbor with the love with which God loves God. And once that has hit us, like once once that has hit us, now we get, I start, I start to get what we can about, the mystery that's been hidden and revealed now. It's remarkable. Uh, I, I, I was just reading some um, interviews that Ronner gave in the last two years of his life. Um, and one, in one interview, some criticisms that had been made by some other pretty well-known theologians of Ronner on love of God, and love of neighbor are brought up, um, you know, worrying about the hierarchy of them. And he's, 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 he's tying them too close. He's almost making them like the same thing. And, doesn't this do damage to religion and worship, uh, you know, or whatever. And it's really striking because he, well, he, he writes it off as a kind of super, he calls it a superfluous criticism, but he also said he actually uses the term. I was pretty, pretty uh, struck to see it. He, He says in Christ, what is accomplished between what seems to us like these two different loves is the perichoresis of these loves Mm. as one. Use that term in this interview, at least, and uh, yeah. and so that it's by the way that's exactly the way that Maximus talks in Letter Two on Love. Um, same thing. You, you, you really, they're ultimately the same love, and it's it's that that's that's a kind of really a sort of reorienting way to view all this stuff. Like I can't treat the Earth uh, badly without knowing that I'm doing that to the Son of God. And vice versa, you know, the way I treat the Son of God is sort of it, it's it's the, the Son of God who is also all and becoming all in all, and and that's true of your neighbor and that's true of everyone, and it really does set up, I think, the the framework a, cl- a clear sort of vantage uh, uh, on the uh, on the sort of what you might call the paradoxical tensions, but really they're the dynamisms of the spiritual life because if what everything we just said was true, then there's a few things that follow. One is that even though I'm right now here, I'm talking to you and I appear to myself, there's still a, there's still a sense in which I've not yet really appeared because he's not really appeared fully. Right. Mm -hmm. Because my appearance and his appearance are mutual. So now the Christian life the spiritual life is that life where I try to look inside of myself because Christ is in me. That's the mystery. But also my life is in, is hidden with him and, and, and we, we need to be mutually you know, manifest and it's not just individual rights. Romans eight, all of creation awaits and grows. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, and so everything is waiting for the manifestation of God, which will be the manifestation of itself as well, because these things are not separable. And so my life, even that my individual, you know, spirituality, my, the, the things that I'm working on, I reflect upon, I have to do what Colossians three said here. I got to look and put to death the things that are false. Things that I falsely identified myself with, my life with, <clears throat> like greed and other vices. And I need to, as it says in one, the, the stronger sense of one of the verbs there that we read was, is sever, sever these things and bury them. 
And so mm-hmm. I need to do that, which is painful. And it explains a lot of what you might, you know, the uncomfortability and the pain and the uh, sort of uh, going outside your, your com- uh, comfort, uh, com- uh, uh, can't even talk comfort zone, you know, to, to do these things. It's very uncomfortable and, and discomforting. And yet, you know, as, as is death <laughs> and as is uh, anything that's, you know, cutting away at you. But at the same time, again, to mix, mix in the Yoanine metaphor, this pruning is the very condition or the, it's a part, it's integral to the process of your true appearance and Christ's appearance in you. And that, that mm-hmm. we're going to end in verse 11 there. Once, once we do that, both individually and, and collectively and cosmically, when we do that, Christ is all in all, and therefore all will truly be because it will be Christ who is your life. And so that kind of, that's the big framework that sets out the sort of the, um, the paradoxes, but also the promises of the spiritual life. And, and, and it's just, it's all right here in Colossians, man. And this four <laughs> chapter little letter, I mean, unbelievable. It is unbelievable. Jordan, thank you for doing this with me. As always, it won't be too long. We'll do it again. Um, I would love to have gotten to a, a bit of chapter two and the end of chapter three, but again, there's there's next time, so we'll uh, we'll get to it then. Thank you again, friend, for doing this. Thanks. Steve.